Well, Lord willing, this will be our final sermon in Luke chapter 9. It seems like we have been in Luke 9 uh, for um, more than two months. So, uh, Luke, uh, this Luke chapter 9, I, I want to, before we get started, um, I want to give credit to Terry Johnson, um, uh, pastor up in Savannah for the outline. I usually read sermons as the last part of my preparations near the end of the week after I've done my week or after I've done my work. And um, his outline was so much more simplified and to the point than mine. I wanted to give him credit because um, I have adopted his outline. Um, but my sermon. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we look to you. We ask that you would uh, speak through your word uh, to our hearts. And so, God, pour out your spirit because you have promised to be our teacher. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I have noticed over the years that um, it's not uncommon for church-going people or for people who believe in God in general, if they don't go to church or do go to church, that they feel like they are doing God a favor for being a believer. You know, so few people in the world actually honor God or believe in Him, so they think that they're doing Him a solid, to use the vernacular. Uh, by believing in Him, or going to church, or serving Him in some way. And one of the reasons why people uh, have this attitude, how it's so easy to fall into this attitude, is we think that we have something to offer to God. Uh, you know, you, you hear it all the time. You know, I've given God the most important thing in my life. I've given Him my heart. And, oh, that sounds so wonderful. You know, love, 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 sunshine and lollipops. I've given my heart to God. But I want to ask this question. I've asked it before, I think, from the pulpit. What would God want with a rebellious and self-serving heart? Uh, give it to God uh, because you know it to, to be too rebellious for you to tame on your own um, and say, God, crucify my rebellious heart and give me a new heart, give me a heart of flesh that's tender uh, um, and easily pricked by your word. You know, I wouldn't have any objections to that. But this idea of giving God our heart because it's the best that we have to give, no, it's the worst that we have to give. God is, um, is, is more holy than we can ever conceive. He is infinitely holy. And we can talk about that. We can even draw out theological statements surrounding that. But for us to actually conceive what that means, it's impossible for us to grasp the infinite uh, holiness of God, especially because we are sinners. In fact, 
we're more sinful than we've ever really considered. Uh, Even after many years of walking with Christ, reading the Scriptures, hearing from the Scriptures that we're sinners. We're really bigger sinners than we actually know. Um, Salvation is is a free gift. It's utterly unmerited. There's nothing you could do to ever deserve it or earn it. Um, we are undeserving of, of such a love being poured out upon us. And that is not only before we become Christians, but also after we become Christians. Being a Christian, I want to remind you this morning is a deeply humbling experience. Because to be a Christian, you have to be aware that your heart outside of Christ is unruly and rebellious. And that if it were not for the new heart and the Holy Spirit that God gives you, your heart would continue to be rebellious and unruly. And even though it's a new heart and we have the Holy Spirit, we're still such sinners that we cry out with the Apostle Paul, the very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing I hate, I end up doing. What a wretched man that I am. Not only did we have unruly and rebel- an unruly and rebellious heart, we also have, or we had before Jesus wiped it away, We had an inconceivably long record of sins committed against God, committed against our neighbor. And then we have an unrighteous life that flows directly from our unruly and rebellious heart. God has dealt with those things in the gospel. He's taken our sins, he's cast them as far as the east is from the west. He tells us he remembers them no no more. He's given us a new life in Christ. He's given us a new heart in Christ. But the favors um, given away are not favors that we are giving to God. It is God giving us the favor of His love, giving us the favor of His salvation. And so, don't get it turned upside down as um, is so easy to do. We have nothing to offer God. There is, um, we are not doing God a favor by believing in Him or serving Him. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him... And I'll add this little editorial note, only because of Him. 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're going to meet three men in this passage who had this upside-down conception for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, they seem to think, these three men we meet, it, it appears that they think that they are doing Jesus the favor by becoming his followers. Um, by dedicating themselves to be his followers, because they're doing the favor, then they think that they can uh, uh, negotiate the terms of their discipleship. See, they want to follow Jesus, but they want to have the final say in how they live their lives. Uh, They want the blessings and excitement of being in Jesus' entourage as it travels from village to village. But they want to remain comfortable in how they live their lives. Or to put it in 21st century jargon, They want to balance their commitment to Jesus with their other commitments. I'm planning to conduct four weddings in the next four months. And uh, a couple of those couples are here this morning. What if I were leading the service and in the vows that they took to each other, the husband Uh, says, I, Bill, take you, uh, Tammy, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband for better or for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish as long as we both shall live, as long as I can have every Wednesday night for basketball and every other Thursday night for poker night with the guys. If you're not willing to agree to those terms, wedding's off. All right? You know, you don't negotiate the vows. I would say to the the bride, run, run down the aisle and don't stop. You know, or the wife could could attach um, conditions uh, to, to her marriage vows, you know. As long as you do the dishes every night and, and buy me a new car every three years. You know, that doesn't work. And Jesus is saying here, when you come to Him for salvation, you are receiving Him as He is without conditions attached to your discipleship. In other words, you have no conditions, no negotiating um, uh, room, because Jesus is the Lord of the universe. You submit to Him, not Him to you. And then the essence of trust is placing yourself in His hands. What you are saying when you come to Him is, Lord, you are the boss. Lord, what you tell us to do is right, good, and just. It is best for me to obey you rather than making uh, your obedience optional or conditional on 
the lifestyle that I want to live. The essence of trust is placing your, yourself in his hands and saying, Lord, you know what's best. I assume most of you know about uh, Nick Walinda, the tightrope walker, lives down in, what, Sarasota, down that way. You know, and he's been stretching a, a tightrope across buildings. I think he did across, was it the Grand Canyon or some canyon recently? And it made me so nervous watching him. I just had to turn, turn the TV off. I, I couldn't do it. But let's suppose for illustrations purposes that he decided he's going to stretch a cable across the Grand Canyon. And he's got a wheelbarrow there. And the crowd's gathered. And he says, who believes that I can push this wheelbarrow um, across uh, Niagara Falls? Yeah, yeah, you can do it. And so he, he takes 200 pounds of sand, he puts it in the wheelbarrow, he walks across, gets halfway, he is, manages to turn the thing around halfway and come back, and everybody's cheering. And he says, how many people believe that I can push this wheelbarrow with a human being in it across, uh, across the Grand Canyon and back? And uh, yeah, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. And so he dumps out the sand and says, who wants to get in? If you trust in his ability to do it, and you really trust in terms of the trust that, that uh, the Scripture is calling you to, You're, the Scripture is calling you to trust entrust your eternity and your life here to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, let's say you trust this Nick Walinda to get you across the Grand Canyon and back in this wheelbarrow. Well, you trust in him enough to get in the wheelbarrow. Part of that trust then also becomes adherence to, um, to his word. You know, once you get out there, you can't get out. You're going to stick with him um, through the big gusts of wind, through the slips that he might almost have. You, you know, the safest place for you to be is in that wheelbarrow, in his, in his capable hands. And then you're not only going to stick with him and you're not going to not get out, but you're also, you're going to obey him. If he says lean a little to the left, you're not going to try and be rebellious and lean to the right. You're going to do what he says. And so this is an illustration of what it means to trust in Christ. You are giving yourself to Him in complete and unqualified surrender. Remember what Jesus says. This has been quite a long time ago. We're moving our way through Luke. But in Luke six forty six, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So, we're going to meet these three men who had uh, a deficient understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. They had a deficient understanding of what it means to enter uh, into a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ as his disciple. Um, so, let's look at the first encounter. 
And basically, the first man that Jesus encounters, he, um, he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, uh, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, Two things that were unique to Jesus' travels on his way to the cross. We live in a different time period, um, and the obedience is not different, but the way it's expressed in this particular case uh, is a little bit unique. Because Jesus, remember, I made a big deal of this last week. He's, he's traveling on his way Well, he's traveled from Galilee, he's on his way, he went through Samaria, now he's entered Judea, and he's on his way to the cross, he's going to take the long way there, visit all the towns and villages in Judea, but uh, as he's traveling around, he doesn't have a home, he doesn't have material belongings except that which is most basic, which they can carry uh, along with them, I think it was at the beginning of chapter six um, when it mentioned the the ladies that um, that were part of his entourage that would uh, help um, provide food and and things that they might need. So Jesus did not have a hotel room where he could stay. You get the sense that. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, they were sleeping out under the stars. Other times they were uh, in the home of someone who was willing to take them in. Uh, But, you know, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests. Jesus says, I have no place to lay my head. See, and many people who were following him during this time. You know, he's, he's uh, working these miracles. Uh, he's casting demons out, healing the sick. Many people at that time thought he would become powerful and famous. And so they would, would want to join his entourage, so to speak, to bask in his popularity. And Jesus is telling this first guy who comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. He, Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're promising. He wants the man to understand that that Christ's life was a life of hardship. Uh, This guy has no idea the opposition that Jesus was going to encounter as he drew uh, ever closer to the cross. In fact, he has no understanding that traveling with Jesus is going to end... It's going to terminate at the cross with Jesus dying a criminal's death. So Jesus is in effect telling this guy, I love you and I have a very difficult plan for your life. Um, Maybe you've noticed, uh, I'm thankful for Jimbo that he does not engage in this, but Evangelists or preachers will often make the mistake of watering down what it means to make a a commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, 
And Jesus doesn't play this bait-and-switch type of game. He wants people to know up front what it will mean for them to be His disciple. What it will mean for them if they are going to commit to following Him. Uh, Sometime in the future, we'll get to Luke chapter 14, Lord willing. Listen to what Jesus said. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men uh, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a far or a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He lays out the terms of discipleship very clearly, pulling no punches. And these are strenuous uh, terms of discipleship. But of course, all those who've met the Lord Jesus Christ would renounce their own life and even more to be His disciple. Jesus is not saying here that um, you will have to leave your family. But you may. In, in the calling that He gives you. So let me ask you, are you willing to go where He sends? Are you willing to commit yourself to Jesus Christ without negotiation, without equivocation? Are you willing to renounce all you have to be His disciple? Salvation, as I've already said, is by free grace to all who entrust themselves to Christ. But this trust is real and it's meaningful. You are committing yourself to Jesus Christ. Not committing yourself to a theological statement. Not committing yourself to some fuzzy idea of what it means to believe. You are committing yourself to the Lord of the universe. Do you trust Him? Will you follow Him wherever He goes, wherever He sends you? I remember when God began calling me into the ministry. Number one, I despise public speaking. I'm just so scared of it. And to this day, I don't eat on Sunday mornings. Um... And part of me was tempted to think, this is a bridge too far. I can't get up in front of people every day or every morning or every Sunday morning and preach. And then I thought, <coughs> well, I thought I was going to 
um, have a little bit more earning power uh, after I got out of college. And I assumed uh, being a pastor was was a life of poverty. Um, you all take care of me beyond my expectations, and I am thankful. But uh, I had to go through that process of, God, am I committed to you so that I will go wherever you call? Is my life really in your hands, do I really trust you for the calling you have laid on my life? And it's not just for me as a pastor, but for every one of you, do you trust Jesus Christ? He says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's a good barometer. So, uh, a disciple must count the cost. Not only that, moving to the second encounter, he or she must also follow Jesus Christ without delay. Verses 59 and 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus initiates this conversation. Most commentators believe that the father of the man that Jesus engages, that his, that his father has not yet died, but is elderly and in need of care. And this was a top priority in uh, the ancient Near East, especially in the Jewish community, caring uh, for your parents, caring for your the older people in your family. In fact, the Scripture, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. And so for Jesus to say, let the dead bury their own dead, you come, follow me, and preach the gospel, that, that probably sound, sounded very scandalous uh, to those who heard him say it. Now, it would appear that Jesus knew that the man was not his father's only caretaker because he said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, there are people who are not following me, who do not belong to me, who are able to care for your father. You prioritize the kingdom of God. You, lead, you follow me and come preach the kingdom of God. See, I think what Jesus is saying to this guy is... Well, I think he detected um, a lack of urgency on this fellow's part. It was not sinful for this man to want to care for his father. But if there were others who could do so, then his priority should be following Jesus and serving him. And again, Jesus was on the road. He, this is kind of a unique period unless you become a missionary um, going town to town, nowhere to lay his head. Um, there are a lot of things that compete for the, the front of the line in our list of priorities. And I think Jesus is saying here, make sure that your priority is him, that he is always at the head of the line. If something other than Christ is your priority. I want to urge you to now is the decisive hour. 
Don't leave this place without committing yourself to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is telling this guy. The time is urgent. Let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. What might be keeping the better part of your attention? And this is where this this passage is, um, is still working on me. It worked on me and is continuing to, to beat me about the head. What might be keeping the better part of your attention? What might keep you from being urgent about the kingdom of God, about the priorities of Christ, a hobby, job, politics, video games, Netflix, Facebook. You know, we could list a whole range of things. There's probably as many things that vie for our priorities as there are people here in this room. We all have our own unique uh, area of struggle or our own area of, of uh, things that, that grab our attention and keep our our priority from from Christ and His kingdom. And let me also say this, because we live in a culture where if you make a decision for Christ, you've, you've filled out the card, uh, you keep it in your wallet, and when you get to heaven, you're going to pull out your get-into-heaven free card. You know, the, it's all about the decision. So I, w- I want to caution you. It is about an ongoing, daily um, personal uh, commitment to Jesus Christ every day. That's why it's so important to read the Scriptures so that you are recalibrating your heart and your priorities. God, this is what you're saying to me today in the Word. Help me to be obedient to it. God, help me to serve you in this way or that way. God, you're talking about this need and I don't have it. It should be my prayer request and and dominate my thoughts through the day. So it's not just a one-time make a decision for Jesus and go your way. Every day, throughout the day, seeking to keep Christ as your priority. Is there an urgency in your life for the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus is saying here to this guy. Now, from the first man, we learn that a disciple must count the cost. So from the second man, we learn that we must follow Christ with urgency. Then we're going to meet a third man, and we're going to learn, hopefully, that we must be decisive in our commitment to Jesus. So we meet this uh, third man in verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This seems like a relatively minor request to me. You know, if I were a 19-year-old and I decided to leave home to follow Jesus without telling my mother goodbye. Um, She would have hunted me down and boxed me about the ears. You know, she wouldn't appreciate me uh, following Jesus and not telling her about my commitment that I've made to him and leaving without telling her. Plus, Elisha, uh, if you remember, uh, made this same request of Elijah 
uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah granted the request. Elijah said, can I go uh, kiss my parents and and my loved ones uh, goodbye? And Elijah said, yeah, go ahead. But when Elisha went home to say goodbye, he threw himself a goodbye party. He had 12 yoke of oxen. He slaughtered them all. And also, I guess I should back up and say, Elijah, when Elijah came upon Elisha, uh, Elijah was out uh, plowing the fields. That's what he did for a living. And so when, um, when Elisha goes home to tell his parents goodbye, he slaughters his means of living and throws a big party. God has chosen me to be the successor for Elijah. I get to serve God by serving Elijah. So, um, he did not, um, he did not hesitate. There was a decisiveness on Elisha's part. And I think Jesus has Elisha in mind when he says, when Jesus responds to this guy in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, and if you're looking back, what's going to happen to the oxen the, uh, and the, the line that you're plowing? It's likely going to um, become not as straight. If you want to have a straight line, you look at a point in the horizon and you drive for that point. Looking back is a recipe for disaster. I remember when I got my learner's uh, permit and I'm driving through town, very proud, first time I'm driving behind the wheel um, legally um, because I grew up in Georgia out in the country and you drove, you know, the truck all over the place. But So I'm driving through town and I see one of my friends and so I, I want to give him the wave. Well, as I turn my head, I turn the wheel and I'm heading into oncoming traffic and my parents about it. Uh, killed me and made me stop the car and get out, and, and they took over. So, um, you know, not looking where I'm going. So Jesus says, uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Think of other people that looked back. Lot's wife looked back, you know, at Sodom and Gomorrah. The Israelites looked backwards towards Egypt when things got difficult in the wilderness. And the scripture says that was a lack of faith. They had no faith. And so they were looking back to those things for satisfaction and for pleasure that really could not bring um, true satisfaction or real salvation. And so Jesus is saying here to this man... um, No, be decisive. Um, If you're going to follow Jesus, you must decisively commit yourself to Him. And that's the essence of trust. This wavering, well, I'm going to follow Him today, you know, and and be a, uh, a, a sunny day Christian, but on rainy days, no. Um... So he's saying that you must decisively commit yourself to him. You know, I had to make many breaks with my former life when I became a Christian uh, in college. And one of those things was my music collection. I had cassette tapes, and some of the young people may not even know what the cassette tapes are. 
But anyway, I had this music collection, probably a few hundred dollars. Um, and I realized that I could not have this music collection in my possession. I couldn't shove it under the bed for a couple of months. I had to make a decisive break with this music because it had such a grip on me. And so I took a hammer one night in my dorm room, smashed every one of those cassettes. Not because it wasn't the music itself, it was the grip that that music had on me. That music was keeping me from making a decisive break and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, are there areas of your life that has you in its grip that you need to make a decisive break? Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've gone just a little long. I'm going to bring this to a conclusion. I hope that you better understand what it means to follow and commit yourself to Jesus Christ. But by in, in ending this sermon, I'm going to remind you of Christ's commitment to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, uh, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured from, su- from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus Christ endured the cross because there was a particular joy that was set before him. You know what that particular joy was? It was redeeming us for God. Love for us drew drove Jesus Christ every step along the way toward that cross. Every night, sleeping out under the stars was for the goal of our salvation. The opposition and the hostility that He endured was for our eternal benefit. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. And so He loves us so much. He loves you so much that all that suffering was worth it to Him. In fact, it was His joy to do so because He loved us so. Now... Immediately, I want to ask you, will you trust Him? But I think the, the, the more pertinent question this morning is, why would you not trust Him? Why would you reject His love for you when He has committed Himself, when He committed Himself to the cross, when He con- committed Himself to the shame, to the opposition, to the pain, to the wrath of God in your behalf. Why would you let anything take priority over Him? Why would you not wholeheartedly, urgently, and decisively follow Him today as we pray together? Lord Jesus, commitment to You is indeed a tough thing, but we thank You that your grace is sufficient for the task. 
we thank you that it is you who does the drawing. Lord, if it was up to us, we'd be fair weather Christians at best. God, I pray that you would help everyone in this room and under the sound of my voice to commit themselves, myself included, wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ and his kingdom today and forevermore. Amen.